From Chagdagumpa Riggs and Lane, this is Listen, Contemplate, Meditate, a podcast featuring a range of teachings from the Buddhist tradition presented by Lamas of Chagdagumpa Foundation. Our website is chagdagumpa.org. You're all here to, because you want to become good practitioners. Some faith in uh, the results of good practice. Mm. So, I guess, uh, from uh, as practitioners, I guess we should always think in terms of how can I become a better practitioner? Which maybe that's obvious to you, but the way that we usually process it is that I'm a bad practitioner. I don't practice good, or I don't practice well. We should always have that uh, feeling that we want to be better practitioners. Uh, When you become a perfect practitioner, Not that we even have to talk about that, but if, when you become a perfect practitioner, uh, which you will, I'm not giving prophecies or anything from anything, but uh, anyone who gives rise to the aspiration to attain enlightenment will become enlightened. Uh, but um, when what I was saying, if when you become a, when you're practice is perfect, uh, you won't know it. You who think your practice isn't perfect won't know it when it is. By now, uh, you're probably, uh, some of you who've been practicing a a little bit longer, some of you practicing not so so long, but you're starting to get a hunch that there's more to practicing, uh, there's more to being a better practitioner than just carrying out a practice well. Especially folks like us who had the, I guess, good good karma to to encounter the sort of the skillful means of Vajrayana. We need to be very uh, 
aware of its uh, danger. Vajrayana is known to be dangerous, not just from the point of view of well, I guess fundamentally from the point of view of the, like the worm in the bamboo uh, pole. Uh, once you enter, once you take empowerment, enter into Vajrayana, you're like a worm in a pole. You either go up or down. There's no in between, no Mr. in between, or Mrs. Miss in between. Uh, that kind of danger is there, but what I'm talking about is is the danger of uh, uh, practicing Vajrayana but failing to become a good practitioner of it, failing to uh, accomplish it because of s- certain things that you're not practicing because of it. Like Vajrayana, uh, even Paltarumpache says in the words of my perfect teacher, Dharma can be the cause for liberation, and it can also be the cause for being uh, of the lower realms. It's all in how you practice it. It's scary. We should be a little worried all the time. Another good attitude or a good sort of background feeling we should have as um, beginning bodhisattva practitioners is to be worried about uh, um, practicing correctly. And again, I don't mean, you know, like playing the drums, the damaru during the inner offerings and not during the outer offerings and things like that. As we know, Vajrayana practice is really a Mahayana practice. And the heart of Mahayana practice is bodhicitta. If we're not engaged in cultivating bodhicitta, um, then we're not uh, Mahayana practitioners. And if we're not Mahayana practitioners, then it's... uh, uh, we can't even talk about Vajrayana. Well, Vajrayana is definitely, we have to be good Mahayana practitioners to practice Vajrayana. And Vajrayana, again, is dangerous because it can obscure that, uh, that point. obscure that point. We can, um, because there's so many uh, things to do, uh, that we can become very, uh, we can, it's very hard to cultivate bodhicitta and do all those things. And if we lose sight of cultivating bodhicitta in all of our activities, basically in our life, uh, then we'll uh, fail to uh, achieve the goals that we 
aspire to. We'll become lost in self-deception. Looking good on the outside, but self-interested on the inside. So that's one point that we really should uh, notice. Always worry about that. I say worry because if I just said we should be concerned about that, that it'll just go right by us. Mm -hmm. A little wary is good. We should be a little bit on edge as Dharma practitioners. Always a little bit kind of on edge. There's a bodhicitta makes all the difference. If we have bodhicitta, then we don't really need anything else. If we have our methods, our, say, Vajrayana practice, our, how we apply it, of course it's, uh, it's based a little bit a little bit on the individual, but in general, it's a way to develop bodhicitta, practicing Vajrayana practice. It's a way of developing bodhicitta. And we should practice it in that way. It's got nothing to do with trying to achieve personal experiences. It's really about, is my compassion increasing? Is my sensitivity to others increasing? Is my uh, view, what's my view? You know, always wondering. Bodhicitta is not easy. It's not easy to, to... Basically, being a bodhisattva is not easy. And you were stuck in a way. We took a bodhisattva vow. When you take a bodhisattva vow, then you're there. You've done it. We say, Buddhas? Like, who becomes Buddha? With, oh, I want to become enlightened. Who becomes enlightened? Bodhisattvas become enlightened. That's who becomes Buddhas, or Bodhisattvas. That's what we have to become first, is a Bodhisattva. <coughs> then at a certain point, through various occurrences, I would imagine, then we attain enlightenment. So who becomes a bodhisattva is someone who makes the vow with compassion for the suffering of beings, you know, driven by the compassion of sentient beings. They take a vow 
to free those beings, all beings, from their suffering. Understanding that the only way that beings are really going to be freed from their suffering is if they become free of karma, free of emotions, free of the habit of not realizing their true nature, not realizing emptiness. So to authenticate, to not just be sentimental about samsara, and sort of romantic about our own uh, altruistic activities to help others, we really have to reflect on what it is that will resolve samsara. What is it that will really resolve the suffering of beings and make up, one makes up one's mind to attain enlightenment, understanding that that's a name, that's a goal that implies being free of causation, being free of duality, and that it is endowed with the qualities of knowing how to benefit beings having the qualities of un, mm, uh, unbiased, all-pervasive, uncontrived compassion, and the quality of strength, of uh, fearlessness, fearless, I say fearless power, fearless strength. <coughs> fearlessness, that if you could attain that, then you'd be able to enter into the lives of beings and possibly, one by one, liberate them from the causes of samsara and achieve your the goal of your compassionate concern for others. And so you, in your mind, in your, with, with, your, with your heart into it, you take the vow, ideally in the presence of someone who has the lineage of the bodhisattva path and can introduce you to that path and you take the bodhisattva vow filled with compassion for sentient beings, filled with compassion for those who are suffering, and with your uh, wisdom, your, your knowing quality direct, directed towards awakening, you promise with this, the lineage, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas as a witness, you make a promise to wake up to your own 
nature in order to benefit others, in order to free others from samsara. It's got nothing to do with your own interests. You're only doing it on behalf of others. You have the karma to have that kind of thought. You have the karma to encounter the lineage. That's why you are able to do that. Many sentient beings, there are infinite sentient beings, and they don't have that. So it's your burden of your responsibility. That's why I say you worry about samsara. It's your responsibility. It's not going to, you know, you and all beings are not going to become free of the causes of suffering, free of ignorance, naturally. It's not going to happen in the course of things because you're a good person or something like that. Or that there's some outer power that's sort of blowing everyone towards awakening. That, that's, that can't be the case, otherwise we wouldn't even have this conversation. That's all in your hands. And you're not alone. You know, there is the jewel of the Sangha, the Mahabodhisattvas, the Arya Bodhisattvas, the ordinary Bodhisattvas on the levels and paths of awakening, the glimpse, you know, those who have glimpsed of this shunyata uh, uh, in an authentic way, and those who are gathering the uh, gathering their resources, accumulating merit, uh, getting used to some sense of wisdom quality. Well, there's many levels and paths, different five paths, ten levels of bodhisattva training. It's not either or. It's all a big gray area. And every individual that takes that vow moves through it according to their karma and their diligence and so forth. But it's, it's their unique experience that path. There's no uh, like exam to get into first level bodhisattva hood. You know, <laughs> then you go from first level. You take the exam and go to second. There's no credentials involved at all, which is hard for us to. Uh, function without. We look for uh, recognition. And we get when we get it, when we get praised for something we might do, we believe it. You know, and we're sunk. We're in samsara. 
So this is just an individual like that who, out of compassion for sentient beings, directs their 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 abilities and their uh, their knowing quality. This this knowing quality directs it towards awakening in order to satisfy that compassion, to accomplish that, that intention of that compassion. Compassion is not bearing the suffering of others. So that's bodhicitta. There's two, two qualities in bodhicitta. This is compassion for sentient beings and a wisdom directed towards enlightenment, awakening. Bodhicitta itself, we should understand, and I'm just reminding you, maybe you know, but there's a two, well, there's three aspects to bodhicitta if you want the details, which, by the way, we crave. We need th- how things break down. We need to know how things how things relate. You know, we're always looking for reference points. That's how our mental consciousness functions with reference points. And dharma is primarily mental. Dharma deals with our problems on the mental level, by the way. Body and speech help the mind to do that. So know that uh, there's uh, three aspects of bodhicitta one is aspiration bodhicitta bodhicitta we can say bodhicitta as aspiration then second is a bodhicitta as engaging and the Third is bodhicitta as, mm, mm, uh, say, as uh, uh, shunyata, emptiness. We could say this, uh, bodhicitta as aspiration and engaging are relative bodhicitta. they're functional, they, they operate. They're where we are. They're, they're where an individual uh, practices. This uh, bodhicitta, this, uh, we call absolute bodhicitta, is basically it's awakening, awakened, awakened. It's already awakened, awakened. Absolute bodhicitta is the domain of Buddhas. It's not caused by aspiration and engaging bodhicitta. But it is... um, What do I say? It is... um, Mm-hmm. Because this absolute bodhicitta is our tr- 
true, true nature. It's our absolute, it's the absolute truth of our nature, innate. It's the minds, it's, it's the, uh, uh, it's the mind in its absolute aspect. It's not something caused. It's not the result of causation. It's free of causation, so it can't come into being through causation. We've had enough of that. You know, we have to uh, work. The path is based on causation. The result is ever-present. Our main, I would suggest, that our main concern, our main practice, has to do with bodhicitta as aspiration. Not that anyone would have the guts to ask you, but if you had to identify yourself as a bodhisattva to yourself, you should think of yourself as a bodhisattva and as a, 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 an aspiration, as an aspiration practitioner of the Bodhisattva path. We need to, 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 to do that a lot. Learn how aspirate, making aspirations are, are, uh, are a practice. We had to learn how making aspirations um, I've been thinking a lot about aspirations because I've been working on some things that have to do with aspirations. You know, this prayer, this aspiration prayer of Samantha Bhadra. <coughs> So I'm, it's kind of, uh, I'm turning it around in my mind. Uh, and that combined with just uh, you know, trying to say something that's going to be beneficial and practical. Even when we um, are, say, contemplating the four thoughts that turn the mind. We should do it as wholeheartedly and as involved as we can and also have this feeling of aspiration associated with it. I aspire to understand the preciousness of this human birth as you are contemplating. A lot of our practice, and in Mahayana, I don't know about uh, uh, sometimes uh, this uh, basic Buddhist uh, practice, is very uh, one-pointed sort of in a way, but uh, when, we get, when you get into the Bodhisattva path, there's a lot of uh, training in simultaneity. to say nothing of Vajrayana. 
You're doing eight or 12 different things all at the same time, you know, all with bodhicitta. I mean, that's one of them, you know. Even doing aspiration bodhicitta with engaging bodhicitta, with absolute bodhicitta, and bells and damaroos and whistles and bells and whatnots. But so there's a lot of that. So we get used to that. Even when we're contemplating, when we take refuge, because basically, I mean, not basically, but let's face it, a lot of our practice, or I would say uh, mostly when we practice, we're... Um, We're not quite doing it right. We're not doing it well. We're not convinced of it. And we take refuge. Of course, contemplating the four thoughts is, 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 is creating the causes for the conditions to get it right, when we, particularly when we take refuge. And all Dharma practice can be seen as a form of refuge. And the primary refuge is in the, the, the Dharma of bodhicitta. When you practice bodhicitta, that's the practice of taking refuge in the Dharma. If you just go through the motions with, you know, your imagination and your body and your voice, uh, that's not, well, where's the refuge to that? You know? As Mahayana, as a, as a beginning bodhisattva practitioners, we have to have bodhicitta in everything that we do. Even brushing our teeth and, and washing, to say nothing of uh, practicing the sacred, sacred methods. We have all these uh, secular, like secular, like brushing teeth is, what do you call that? To ordinary functions of our life. And it's not that we don't have a mind. It's the same mind that brushes your teeth and makes your bed it's the same mind is doing that that's sitting in the shrine room uh, gazing on images of Buddha taking refuge and so forth. The difference is that when we say come here and we see then that reminds us of bodhicitta. You should always think all these images should remind us of bodhicitta. That is to say do you have it or not? You walk in and you're, and you're walking into the witnesses, compassionate witnesses that only have your welfare in mind. And feel as though you have to, if you think that you're always, like in Shantideva says, if you always think that you're in the presence of Buddhas out there or whatever, then your behavior, your speech, and your, your 
performance, your uh, your behavior, uh, and your thoughts will always be self-corrected. You won't have to make efforts to correct your behavior, your thoughts. He says. So in Vajrayana, we train to always have a guru above your head. How can you go wrong with that? You can't. When you forget, then you go wrong, almost simultaneously. So mostly, I mean, given all of that, which is... That's who we are. That's the kind of practitioners we are. You know, we need constantly remind to be reminded. You know, we need pictures and books and and paraphernalia. We need all these things to remind us. And instead of reminding us, reminding us, very often they're just what do you call it? Uh, uh, um, Ego, they're just Buddhist personality accoutrements. We th oh, I have all this stuff. That must mean I'm a Buddhist practitioner, a yogi. That's why it's so dangerous. But we're stuck. It would be also just as wrong-headed to throw all this away, you know? Be a big show-off about how you don't need any of this stuff. So we're stuck. You know, we're stuck that way, we're stuck. We've had empowerment from this one or that master, so we're stuck there. We took the bodhisattva vow, so we're stuck with that. And we took refuge. Uh, I don't know, I guess we're a little stuck with that. In other words, samsara, even though our habit is totally samsaric, and we have these little, it's like pulling hairs, you know, pulling hairs out one at a time. Uh, this uh, whole head is a samsaric, and then refuge, we pull out a little hair and think, oh, I'm, a, I'm really taking refuge, you know. Meanwhile, our habit is so samsaric, it's disgusting, you know. So we should really be practitioners of aspiration. Otherwise, we will get disgusted. And we have nowhere to go. <laughs> it's too late, you know. We're, we're kind of stuck. Uh, so, and I've seen, you know, in my short life's experience, people they just abandon ship, you know, just give it up, dharma. Uh, a lot of it, well, I don't, I don't know other people's minds, but only Buddha knows other people's uh, mental functioning uh, states. Uh, but um, because there's nothing wrong with thinking you need to be a better practitioner, like I said first. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, worrying that you're not a good enough practitioner, but it's what comes next. How 
stern your judgmental mind is, how inflexible it is, how tyrannical your judgment mind is. If you identify as a aspiring or aspiration practitioner, you make aspirations. I, I totally lost it. Another hour and a half at Puja thinking about something entirely different. I really aspire to be undistracted at Puja. That is good, that's a good practitioner. Being distracted, that's normal. That's not, that's nothing to bring the, the, the you know, the hatchet of Mr. or Mrs. Judgmental Mind, you know. It's, you made an aspiration to be less distracted. I need, I aspire to be like bodhisattvas who are undivided in their attention towards the welfare of others. When we aspire for something, and even, you know, these great bodhisattvas like Samantabhadra and Manjushri, Maitreya, all the, they've made great aspirations for lifetimes and lifetimes, for kalpas. Eons, eons. They've made aspirations. So we should make aspirations like they did. Or we can make aspirations. We don't have to wait to become a bodhisattva to make aspirations. We make them now. We have them. Every time we do tar practice, you know, by the power of having prayed thus from the heart, may the enlightened mind be mastered. There it is, right there. And so, so on and so forth. Right down to details, you know. I aspire that my karma gets purified, but not too much, okay? I can't, I might not be able to take all my karma, so really protect me from too much purification. I can only take so much abuse. I can only be insulted so much. You know, I'll deal with a little bit of insult. I'll deal with a little bit of, uh, what do you call it, you know, not being uh, recognized, not being honored, or you know, not being acknowledged, you know. I'll take a little bit. We pray that in that something there, you know. So there's aspirations. That's bodhicitta. That's your bodhicitta practice. It's aspiring for enlightenment with all of the habits of samsara still functioning uh, pretty highly pretty highly developed. We're quite used to samsara. We just, just think of yourself as somebody who just suddenly, like Shantideva's, you know, like a flash of lightning in the dark night. That's the amount of virtue. That's the virtue that causes us like, I want to attain enlightenment. Like totally out of the blue. Think that way. It's not that we're this enlightened bodhi, bodhisattva machine that's just been chugging along for eons, and now here we are, and you know, 
post-industrial modern society on this slippery plates of this big rock floating through space and now I'm here you know like just keep moving on kind of guy you know uh, it's not just think of ourselves as little baby frail little prematurely born babies you know preemies we need to be cocooned incubated our bodhicitta just if we even think of it before like you know the end of the week you know uh it's it's very frail and and uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to forget. We're not used to it yet. It's new. So make aspirations. You know, may I get used to bodhicitta. May I get used to making aspirations. Make that aspiration. When you're practicing. Uh, Even mantra. And we make aspirations as we're practicing. I mean, that's really what we're doing, isn't it? We are, we go through the, the, the development stage practice, say, where we're sort of uh, fed the information that, that uh, guides how we envision our world. And we're so unused to it that we get distracted by what we're used to. Anybody knows, I mean, uh, that uh, uh, if, if you're not familiar with something, it's hard to pay attention, it's hard to focus on things that you're not familiar with. So we gain familiarity by repetition. So what we're doing is we're basically making aspirations. We're, even though we can be practicing, practicing, you know, mantras and visualization and so forth, basically we should think that we're just taking an interest in this. We're making aspirations. We're involving ourselves with a deity that's an aspiration deity, a product of our aspiration. It's been suggested to us, and now we're aspiring to be Tara, we're aspiring to think of of the the twenty one Taras and, and Tara in front of us, or self visualization, or what have you. We're aspiring to be Chenrezig as we practice. Aspirations are the beginning of accomplishment. It's an absolute necessity to aspire, to make aspirations. If we don't make aspirations, our practice will be always vague. It's, it'll be sort of atmospheric, but that's about it. Impermanent. You make aspirations as you're practicing. Even you, you can prostrate and recite refuge prayers and visualize your sources of refuge in front. And 
have a feeling that you're taking refuge, but kind of knowing that you know, you know, you're not really taking refuge. You're not very. You're not doing this. You're not. Your whole heart isn't in it. You know. And add, I aspire to take refuge perfectly. I aspire to have the renunciation that will drive me to be a really seek refuge in the true sense of the word. As you're taking refuge. Even we think a light ray is going out, purifying the six realms or what have you. Isn't that aspiration? It's like your aspirations taking a visual form, a mental picture. You're picturing an aspiration. We can't do that now. It's an aspiration on a sort of a, a, the, uh, a kind of aesthetic. It's, it's the aesthetics of of concepts. It's concepts, but not words. So think of it as what it is, and not be stressed out. It's aspiration. If we, if we, if we think we're beyond aspiration and are actually engaging in beneficial activity, we're going to be uh, stressed out as practitioners. We're going to be uh, discouraged. We can't practice, even a, a very devoted disciple of Buddha Shakyamuni, a great king, he was a great a king, a small king. India had many small kings, kingdoms, but he was a great devotee, a great, uh, uh, had great faith in the teachings. But he said, you know, I'm a king. It's impossible, it's impossible for me to practice the six paramitas. Just like it is for us. You know? We can't give away all our possessions. We can't give our fingers and arms and <coughs> heads. Some prankster comes up and says, oh, if you're a good practitioner, you give me your, I want your left arm. I want your right arm, you know. We wouldn't do it. We'd think he was just joking. Pull back. We'd pull back. So we can't practice so much, really. We can, we're, our practice, we can aspire to practice, though. Okay, I'll give like $10 and aspire like even you, like Rinpoche's teaches one grain of millet, and you make this over-the-top aspiration with that, you know. You all know what I'm talking about, you know, like just blowing everything out of proportion. That's good aspiration bodhicitta practice. That's what we should recognize as where, we're, where the tread is going to hit the ground. Is that where the rubber hits the ground? We should feel as though we are doing perfect practice 
when we make those kinds of aspirations. When we are doing practice that we think we're perfect at, we should aspire to make it perfect, not settle on our confused, kind of vague, uh, uh, you know, uh, obscured practice that sort of flickers in and out and so forth. Uh, we should always practice as an aspiration, bodhicitta aspiration. This is how this is how great bodhisattvas practiced. I aspire to be like that. When we make aspirations, we are cultivating something that's the, one of the most important uh, character traits as a Dharma practitioner. Practitioner, uh, I think from the ground up, from you know, uh, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, whatever, and that's humi- uh, humility. It's a big threat that we should also be very worried about. Even bodhisattvas, you see in the sutras, you know, bodhisattvas, they, Buddha talked about the. Humility, humble. You have to be a humble practitioner. So when you make aspirations, you assume that you haven't accomplished what you are aspiring for. So already you're cultivating a quality in your character as a uh, uh, character trait as a practitioner of humility. So aspirations, that's why aspirations are so wonderful as a practice, so beneficial. Uh, otherwise we do practice and, and we can get the completely wrong idea of who we are, you know. Be way off the mark. Be very proud. Or the other side, you know, discouraged. I'm the worst practitioner, or I'm the best practitioner. You know, the two two faces of pride. And certainly, uh, pride is a threat to the young, uh, you know, a beginning bodhisattva path, beginners on the bodhisattva path, because here we are. <laughs> Uh, making this over-the-top, crazy-making promise to attain enlightenment so that we can then stir samsara up from its depths. You know, oh, if I was enlightened, I'd be able to go to the hell realms just like that. I really pray that I can do that. You know, how can I get to the lowest, deepest, most torturous, oppressive hell realm? That's what I aspire to do. Huh? We're making those kind of promises. I will do that. So that can give you some kind of arrogance, you know, or just like, oh my God, what have I done? I must have been like Shanti Deva. I must have been out of my mind to say such a thing. So aspiration, everything is possible. Like in the Garjan, it says, you know, all uh, everything is accomplished with aspirations. 
That's where you can go over the top with your pride. If you have a lot of a very conceited and arrogant, okay, harness all that wonderfulness about you and turn it into an aspiration. I think pretty sure we can be certain that we are not what we think we are. You know. And that goes in either direction. The best practitioner or the worst practitioner. We're nothing like either one of those. So aspiration is a wonderful antidote to pride. Who's many places we hear, and Rinpoche also says how uh, uh, basically uh, we can make great, great aspirations, you know, very uh, grand aspirations, as engaging, you know, this engaging bodhicitta. Low expectations. Aspiration, high expectations, but on the ground, low expectations. Humble. For somebody who, a, a real, this is said in the sutras, a, a, a real, uh, someone who really understands emptiness, shunyata, a real stable understanding of shunyata automatically is humble. Somebody who just starts having glimpses, some realization of emptiness, dangerous levels of what's pride can arise, definitely. Because sometimes it's, it's, it's in and out. And you start thinking about yourself in elevated terms. You can do, oh, you see through the whole illusion of karma. And you think you have great realization to be able to see that. And then you do things that are uh, against the, you know, you do non-virtuous things because you see how karma is just a, a dream, an illusion. So this is something to uh, be very uh, careful of. Even we see things as like dream. That's one of our kind of underlying practices. And we, it's kind of an aspiration, isn't it? We, we're trying to, envis- uh, trying to feel everything to be a dream. So we're aspiring to ourselves to see everything as a dream. And that acts as an antidote to the mistake of not seeing illusion to be an illusion. Mm 
When you see an illusion to be an illusion, you see the nature of phenomena. You understand the nature of phenomena. But right now we understand phenomena to be real when it's not. So we can try, meaning make aspiration. May I see all phenomena, what is it? The dream fabric of the night. May I awaken to perceive the, the dream fabric of the night. It's an aspiration to see everything in its true nature. Shunyata. So I, um, uh, I'll end with that. Uh, my uh, uh, advice to you about how to practice as a with aspiration and how important it is, you know, how beneficial it is. It becomes uh, the the ground of engaging bodhicitta. One thing I, sh- I mentioned, I should mention also, is how can we uh, oh, that's, that's all. That's good. Yes, definitely. This podcast is supported by the generosity and kindness of Chagdagumpa members and donors. If you're interested in becoming a member, making a donation, or if you want to learn more about Chagdagumpa, feel free to go to chagdagumpa.org.